Hey, it's Jonathan. One of the things that I've learned over the years is that a pretty significant part of our community are what I call conscious entrepreneurs. And what I mean by that is it's folks who are founders, and that could be of a business, an organization, foundation, private practice, anything like that, that have three things in common. One is that you serve a genuine need. You really solve a problem and you deliver that and get paid for it. And so solving a problem and generating real profit is important to you. The second is that what you create actually serves as a true vehicle for the expression of your strengths your values and beliefs and your voice. So it lets you step into your fullest potential. And the third is that there's something bigger happening here. You're part of something bigger and you're serving some bigger need. And that's what I call a conscious business. And we've created all sorts of experiences, programs, courses over the years designed to serve conscious business founders in a variety of ways. And amazing things have happened. We put pretty much everything on hiatus this year because we wanted to really deconstruct what we were doing and figure out how to bring more people together to serve them on a higher level. Because what we found is that not only do people need information and great advice and strategy and support, but there's a tremendous amount of isolation and loneliness for so many people who are in the business of founding conscious businesses. And we want to create a true community. So we've been at work at this for the better part of the year, and I'm really excited to share that we are now live with this really powerful new experience. It's called The 108, and it is a conscious business collective. And if you want to know what that's all about, if you want to figure out whether it's in any way something that would be interesting for you, then you can either just click on the link in the show notes or just head on over to goodlifeproject.com slash the 108. That's T-H-E and then the number 108. Check it out. See if it feels right to you. If it does, then awesome. And if not, then uh, thank you for listening. And I'm going to kick it over to uh, today's guest. Thanks so much. It took me a while. I mean, it really took me a while to figure out how I wanted to be in the world and like what of my wants were responses to things that I'd experienced in childhood and what were actually the things that I wanted and like the kind of life that I wanted. My guest this week is Emily McDowell. She's been on my radar for a number of years. About five years ago, if you'd asked Emily what she was up to, she would tell you that she was an executive, a creative director in the advertising world. Fast forward. She is now the head of Emily McDowell Studios. They have a line of cards, merchandise, all sorts of stuff. Really awesome, irreverent, funny, illustrated, blending, all the things you wish you could say, but never could find a card to say it. And all the thoughts out on your mind for those weird, difficult scenarios and relationships. And they're putting it out into the world. And what she's created has absolutely taken off now available on, I think, closing in on 2000 retail locations. And she's at a a fascinating point of inflection. This has all happened literally in the last three to four years. She's gone from creating a single card that took the uh, online world by storm and has exploded into a really fast-growing company. And she's at a point where she's trying to figure out where to go next and what to do. We sit down and spend a whole bunch of time talking about her journey. Emily is also somebody who, at the age of 24, was diagnosed with cancer and made a very deliberate decision after going through treatment that she didn't want it to define herself. Yet much later, 
she's circled back and created an entire line of cards called her, her Empathy Series that does not define her brand, but brings her unique lens, her irreverent wit and sense of humor to helping people understand how to navigate the conversations around illness and just around scenarios that are really complex. Really excited to share Emily, her story, and what she's building and her amazing creative energy with you. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. The show is sponsored by meditation app, 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions, and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author, Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. So we're hanging out here today, and we were just both in Portland, Oregon together, hanging out uh, World Domination Summit. How did you like being on stage there? I actually really liked it. I was really surprised. I have done a bunch of speaking, but that was the biggest audience that I'd ever spoken to. And it was the biggest audience that I'd ever spoken to without notes or a podium to uh, sort of clutch and yeah, hide yeah. behind, you know? And so I was nervous about it until I went on stage and then I wasn't and it was fine. And it was, it just felt like me talking about my life, which I know. So I was like, I don't, you know, I don't yeah. really, I'm not like super worried about memorizing a thing. I know. It's also that, I mean, that audience is such, it's almost like they just, they love you. They want you it's to, true. to rise. They it's, were it's such a warm, they uh, were super audience. warm yeah. and amazing. And I felt like I could have just gotten up there and done like an interpretive dance for 40 minutes almost. <laughs> and they would have been like, awesome, like way to experiment, you know, which I'm glad that that didn't come to fruition because then there would be evidence on the internet. This is true. And, I, and I've seen your famed uh, resume for uh, dance neuroses. Oh, have you? <laughs> <laughs> I was cracking up reading that. that uh, I'm like, I have a lot Because I'm like checking that. off the things where I'm like, that's me too. That's me too. <laughs> well, it came out of this thing that, you know, my friend and I were talking about this and I was working on a guided journal project that ended up getting shelved and it might come back someday. But it was this thinking about the idea that as adults... We ha- there are so many be- beliefs that we have about ourselves that started to be formed very early and that started to be formed in ways that like logically make no sense. Like right. I have a, my stepson is 11 and he just finished uh, sixth grade or he's, he's in, excuse me, he just finished fifth grade and fifth grade for me was like my worst year. Like I, I actually really liked middle school and fifth grade was like the year when everything kind of fell apart for me, like socially huh. at school. You front loaded it. I did. <laughs> I really did. I got it over early. So it was kind of in a good way. It was yeah. kind of good in some ways, but there was, I remember like the fifth grade boys being like, you know, you're just really weird insults. Like your hands are really puffy. Like, or you're like just these <laughs> like things that make, and I think about 
And those were all things that I like internalized about myself. And I'm like, oh, my puffy hands, you know? And like to this day, I'm like, oh, I have to, I can't wear like this ring because my hand is puffy. And it's like, you know, because I I looked at Oliver and I'm like, Oliver doesn't even know what's coming out of his mouth. Like he's a total spaz. He just doesn't even like, you know, he's just whatever. That's how you're supposed to be at that Exactly. (laughs) You're just like, you say nothing makes any sense. And so thinking about like, a belief about yourself as an adult person with agency that came from something that came out of the mouth of a kid who was 11, who has no memory of having said that and no idea that that could have a repercussion on someone like 30 years. Down right. Road, and it just you know? lingers with you. It just lingers with it's you. Amazing. And so the dance thing was, you know, started really early and like, and I started talking with my friend about um, how I'm, just a terrible dancer. And I've had this like sort of dance phobia. And so I made this neurosis resume that basically traced it back to its genesis of like all of the times I felt inadequate in dance (laughs) and like put it together in sort of resume format to look at it. And it was really fun to write it. And it was also just a really interesting exercise to look at like how neuroses get formed Mm. and why, and kind of break down like the logical fallacy of it, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I was reading, and, and for you guys have to go. I'll, I'll I'll make sure I drop a link into the uh, show notes, but it's really funny. It's like a resume, which just is like every moment where you had like an opportunity to dance, you know, like from weddings <laughs> to school dances, and just how like how the neuroses manifested in that moment. Um, and it was, but it it it's so interesting too because how I mean, so much stuff that happens to us, or like in that window of years between, I guess for you, it started in fifth grade and sort of like middle school, high school. You can be like 40s, 50s, and like it takes in the blink of an eye, oh it all gosh, comes yeah. flying. And you're like, wait a minute, haven't I grown? Like, at some point, don't I get to just grow out of this right. and leave like, it all behind? Just, just like, not right, this just be anymore? like, like, like whatever. Be freed from the specter of like a, something a 10 year old said to me right. once. It's, like, <laughs> it's insane how stuff can just snap you back there, yeah. like in so quickly. Yeah, we see it's it's kind of funny too because we see it in uh. It's sort of like a macrocosm level because we we do some large events too where people are living together. I mean, literally like, you know, in communal living yeah. for the better part of four days. Mm-hmm. And that it's an amazing, amazing experience. And at the same time, you know, for some people, it'll bring up stuff. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you know, just sort of being around. And so we have to create this expectation really fast that, you know, like it, it's cool. You know, like this is camp without all the adolescent angst because nobody cares anymore. Right. And people realize that within the first 24 hours. But until they do, sometimes those first few hours, some people, you know, it's like you have to get used to that. that this it is going to be okay. Triggers all your stuff. For yeah. Sure. It's yeah. amazing yeah. how. So we see it, it just stays with us. Yeah. And you're kind of like, how much therapy do we need? I to know, just right? Like, and I feel like go. I'm like I've had a lot of therapy. Like I feel like I've talked about this a lot. Like, can the dance thing like go away? You know, and right. uh, and it's actually better than it used to be because I did do like kind of a bunch of work around it and like even just breaking it down in the like logical into like doing the resume made me feel better about it. Like right. it made me feel like just look at like what is this? Like what is the, none of this means anything? Right. You know, like and who cares? But yeah, I mean, it's it's a uh, at a certain point you're like. Why am I paying someone to talk about this? <laughs> like, can we just leave this right. behind? It's like, well, we'll, we'll cut off the therapy, and now I'm just going to go challenge myself to dance publicly for like every week. Right. For, well, this was like the uh, the person who was speaking at uh, WS, right? Um, right. Michelle. Michelle. Uh, I'm blanking. Uh, Polar. Yeah. Uh, Polar. Yeah. About how she challenged herself like every day for a hundred days to just do something that scared the crap out of her. Right. Um, and it's amazing what that like just doing it like the exposure therapy does to you. Oh my gosh! <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
All right. So you grew up in Western Mass. Yeah, I grew up just outside of Boston. So just outside of Boston. And um, what type of kid were you? What type of? Oh, I was a weird kid. <laughs> um, I was really, I was a really like precocious kid. And I also had like really low self-esteem. So it was kind of a weird combination. You mm. know what I mean? Like I was kind of like, like I was just insecure about it about being a person in the world. And so I kind of needed to like prove to everyone how smart I was all the time, mm. uh, which is probably why everyone in fifth grade one day was like, we don't like you. Um, and, <laughs> and I had to kind of learn that lesson. But I think that um, my parents were divorced and, and my, we lived with my mom and it was not a super easy childhood for many reasons. And so I was kind of always looking outside of home to get validation and find sort of adults to be close to. Mm. Um, I remember very distinctly the moment that I realized that I was funny and that I could be funny and like that funny was a, a social currency. So like I remember it super clearly. I was in, it was the very beginning of seventh grade and it was Spanish class and the teacher said something and I, instead of like just responding in my head, like I always had before in terms of like making some smart ass comment, I said it out loud and the whole class was like, ah, and I was like, oh my God, like. I have like I can do this like I can be and because I never felt I never liked the way I looked like I never felt like I was like pretty I never felt like I you know like I was always insecure about like certain things and then I was like and then it, it was like oh my god like this is I can be this like I can be I can say the things that I think in my head out loud and people will respond to them and like them mm. and this is a way that I can be in the world that that makes sense to me. So did that open the floodgates? It really did. Like it really did. And then I, be, and then, you know, I really, I ended up really liking middle school and high school. Like I was really social and like had just kind of a nice life. And so it was, like, it's, it's a, which is like the opposite of how like most people's experiences go, you right. know, but I had really, really close friends that I still have like to this day and I'm 40 and I haven't lived in Massachusetts for since I was 18 and all of them went to college in New England and like grew up and married each other. You know, and like I left when I was 18 and went to Minnesota for school. Yeah. And uh, haven't lived there since, but I still have friends from, from high school. Were any of the friends that you're still friends with in that classroom with you in seventh grade? Um, yeah, actually. Do, like, do, you, do any of them remember that moment as no, something where you know they're what? like, That's oh, wow. That's so funny like, because I just realized last year that this was – like I just put it together last year that there was a moment of genesis huh. for this. Like I'd always sort of – you know, thought about, oh, yeah, like, seventh grade was when I started to, like, be just more outgoing with, with other kids and yeah. just be more, you know, be more of who I was instead of kind of being nervous all the time about pleasing everybody and trying to, you know, like, just yeah. being more uh, just out out there. It's amazing, right? Because they're, they're probably, probably everybody has, like, those few moments in their lives where something changed. And, yeah. they, and maybe they didn't know it. At some point, they reflect about it and, like, oh, that was the moment. But it was very likely this innocuous thing where it wasn't a big thing. It was just something internally shifted and where you, that becomes a really pivotal moment for you. But, but I'm always curious whether other people around right. are aware probably of not. the importance of that moment. You know, I mean, probably not. Yeah. Because it was just, it wasn't like I stood up and did some big Jerry Maguire right. thing or anything. It was just like, <laughs> yeah, it's just, I just made some dumb joke, you right. know, but then in my head it was, it turned into this whole like, oh wait, this is, a, and, and, but everyone, of course, especially at that age is just thinking about themselves. It's like, you know, dance like no one is watching because no one is watching because everyone's worried about themselves, right. you know, and that's, <laughs> so it's like, I don't think anyone's thinking about like, 
what's that kid what's going on in the in the psyche of that kid over no, there you're too freaked out about yourself yeah like <laughs> you're like you oh know, my god like, no you're just like think are my shoes weird yeah. you know like i don't know but yeah it is it is so interesting to think about that stuff i think yeah it's pretty amazing that you kept those that type group of friends for so long also yeah i was in a youth group actually in in um high school that was that started at a church like unitarian church so it wasn't religiously no. based that i really credit that for I guess I feel like I had deeper friendships in high school than a lot of people that I know hmm. did who came from different places. And it was, I feel, I really credit the people who, the leaders of this youth group who I'm still in touch with and who are now like 80 That's um, for creating an environment where they sort of supported us in talking about really important things like trust and different elements of friendship and how to like how to show up for other people and how to be a friend and how to um and how to engage with other people in a in a deeper way than just like some typical high school stuff and we did retreats like three times a year that were just kind of a weekend things and and it was like once a week and every week had like a different theme where we all like talked about stuff and it was Mm. it was really cool because it really it turned by by like my senior year in high school. It was really popular. There were like fifty kids going to it, and oh, wow. my town. I had two hundred in my graduating class, so it was like quarter you know, graduating class, right? Yeah. And you know, and it was all high school. It was all grades. It was nine through twelve. So it was like you know, but it was probably more juniors and seniors than younger kids. But it wasn't clicky. Like it was so interesting, mm. and I, that you could go to this and you could have like a kid who was a a jock kid and a kid who was like a nerdy kid or whatever. And they would end up becoming friends and all of the sort of high school, like bullshit just kind of didn't apply. And even then we knew that that was rare. Like even then we knew that that was like weird and kind of special, Yeah. but I really, and then I went to, into, to college and realized like, Oh, most people didn't have an experience like this. And I really credit that with like sort of teaching me how to be a, a person. Yeah. It's amazing. I think uh, I often wonder why, there isn't a part of curriculum, which is sort of life skills. I wonder that all the time. Like the big questions, like the fundamental life skills, sort of like how do you interact with people, what really matters, you know, how do you define success in a way that actually resonates with you, all these different... And I think a lot of it, traditionally, you know, it was, you know, society's definition, this is what's appropriate, just accept it. And then outside of that, the conversation always happened around some sort of like faith-based organization. Right. But... Now, I, you know, like so many people are peeling away. From, I mean, like the fastest growing group of people in the country now are what they call the nuns because they're like non-affiliated. Yeah. So you wonder, it's such an important set of conversations and it skills is. that's kind of vanishing. Yeah. And I wonder what the sort of like the long-term pain around that's going to be. I agree. I read, you know, and I've never been religious in terms of organized religion person. And I grew up in a super liberal household in the Northeast. And so... Faith, like organized faith, has never been a big part of my life. And I read an article recently that was about that, that was that really sort of changed the way that I thought about religion, mm. saying that religion served as a framework for basically teaching us how to, teaching us like ethics and teaching yeah. us how to figure out who we were and asking ourselves and each other those questions and kind of going deeper and it sort of forced everyone to do that and it and it also created community. And whether or not you believe in the thing that brought everyone together in that community or not, that wasn't even that wasn't really the the point of it. I mean, the point of it was to just be in a be in community, yeah. and that vanishing is 
really scary, you know? I, so, um, right. Yeah, I mean, it created a sense of, like, like you said, an ethos and also a sense of belonging. Yeah. That is, we have to have. I mean, we can't flourish um, without that. And it's really, it's that all, all the main sources that are provided over generations are, are either not providing anymore or people are running from it. And, yeah. I, and I wonder, like, we have to have that need filled. Like, where are we going to find it? Because we're not going to find it on the same level online that we can find it by just being, like, face-to-face with yeah. a small local community of people. Yeah, I um, agree. Yeah, so it's really, I'm, I'm fascinated by that phenomenon and how we're going to solve for that need these yeah. days. yeah. So at some point, when did your interest in sort of expression and art start to emerge? Oh, really, really young. My yeah. mom's an artist. And so we were very, like, <laughs> like there were a lot of things that we were not allowed to have as kids because they, like, weren't creative. Like, we couldn't huh. have coloring books, like, things that other kids had. Like, you know, any kind of a kit, like, anything that, anything that like, sort of solved any kind of creative problem for yeah. you. Like, even partially, my mom right. was like, no. Like, <laughs> you get a lump of clay. You Total know, like, purist. you get a, yeah. <laughs> like... <laughs> We have a kiln. Here's a lump of clay. Like, well, right. you know. And so I started art. I mean, I, I've always loved making art. But the funny thing was that I never thought that I would be an artist because my mom was an artist and she really struggled. Like, she really, my parents split up when I was uh, six and my younger sister was four. And my mom had stayed home for a while, like, took started staying home before I was born. And she actually went to MIT when there were very few women at MIT, like, six, you know, like it was very new and worked at an architecture firm, but didn't work there very long. Like didn't, wasn't senior in her career and then left and, and to have kids. And then, so looking back, trying to go back into the workforce, she was like, what can I do? Like, I can't pay anything that's even going to cover the cost of my childcare that, that, and so I need to find something to do to work from home. Um, and so she decided that she was going to make art quilts my mom's a quilt maker mm. and is now like sort of one of the best known quilt makers in the world and has stuff in major museums and is oh, wow. very like sort of credited as the leader of this sort of art. One of the leaders of this art quilt movement from the eighties and like is, you know, became very well known in that world. But when she started, she was like, I'm just going to do this. And it wasn't a thing. Like it wasn't like, Oh, I'm going to go join this movement that's happening. It was like, I'm going to start making quilts and people would be like quilts for your bed. And she'd be like, no quilts for the wall. And that was like, what? And she also mm. didn't really know how to make a quilt. Like she wasn't, like, <laughs> like she wasn't. Like, and so it was kind of like, she was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, she taught herself how to do it. And then she ended up teaching herself like pioneering all that. She wrote up, um, she's written 10 books about pioneering piecing methods and all kinds of stuff. Cause she used math from her MIT background to be able to figure out like oh, how to so do cool. some really complicated things. But as a kid, I was like, what? can you just get a job? Like, can you just, you know, like this is, I don't, this is really, and we grew up in this really wealthy town. So it was, it was very, we had no money. I mean, we lived on basically the child support that my dad was giving us, you know, and while she was establishing herself as an artist and as an adult now, it all makes sense to me. Like I get why she did it. I get why she felt cornered into, you know, feeling like she couldn't go back to work, having to work for herself, feeling like she couldn't work for someone else. Like all these things I understand now, but as a kid, it was like, this is hard, you know? You're just looking for security. Yeah, and she was unhappy, and we were really broke. And so in my head, I sort of was like, well, I don't want to be an artist because that that represents, like, struggle. Mm. Like, that represents a life that I don't want to have, a kind of life. And she ended up ultimately being successful, like, but it took 10 years. So I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, and plus my sister, my sister is a super talented artist. She was, she's an illustrator. She's not anymore. Now she uh, is a jewelry buyer, but she went to, 
art school and like she did that whole like I'm gonna go to art school and do that path and so and I was always really academic so I was like I'm gonna go do something else and I in fact when I was a kid was very much like I'm gonna be a lawyer or something like Hmm. I wanted to like climb a career ladder and I wanted something that represented like security and like professionalism to me you know Mm -hmm. like I wanted like this idea of like going to work in a suit I was like very attracted to that because it felt like validation or like real or like secure or something, you know? And so the thought of being an artist, it wasn't interesting to me. And I majored in English with a focus in creative writing in college and minored in art without even really intending to, I just liked taking art classes. And so I did. And then it just sort of became my minor, but it was pre-computers. So it was like fiber arts, you know, it was and like, you know, printmaking and stuff. Like it wasn't like learning skills that would translate into going and getting a design job or anything like so that. So even then, in the back of your mind, this was just something that you were enjoying. It, was, it wasn't like, okay, no, I'm was, setting up my future. Absolutely yeah. not. There was zero. And I feel like my undergrad, I mean, I loved where I went to school. I went to a, a school called McAllister in Minnesota and uh, St. Paul. And I loved where I went to school. And they have a really well-known like international studies program and an economics program. And, and there were a lot of people there setting up their future. And I was really like, I'm making an action movie with my friend. You know, I mean, I was... <laughs> I was like, I'm going to pay for this until I'm 40, which I did. I just paid my final student loans for undergrad. But I really got out of college and was like, what did I just do? Like, who, what do I, what, what is a job? You know? Right. (laughs) So, uh, so yeah, it took me a while. I mean, it really took me a while to figure out how I wanted to be in the world and like what of my wants were responses to things that I'd experienced in childhood and what were actually the things that I wanted and like the kind of life that I wanted, Yeah, you know? Um, most people never even look at that until, you know, like much later in life, <laughs> if ever. I mean, so, I think so yeah. many people actually never even explore that. Right. You know, they're kind of like, uh, well, that's not what it's supposed to be about, um, which is so sad. Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new marketing hub enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash wondery. That's hubspot.com slash wondery. Good Life Project is supported by Signature Hardware. So if you're looking for the perfect item to take your kitchen or bathroom or house up a notch, head over to SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. They offer an incredibly wide variety of pieces for every room in your house with more than 20 years experience supplying vanity, sinks, tubs, hardware, plus all the classics, latest styles, and they're in sync with all the trending colors and design touches. And they also have amazing customer service to help guide you through the process. So you'll never feel lost 
embarrassed or intimidated. Gotta love a company that really stands behind what they offer. Stephanie and I actually picked out a collection of eight furnishings that we love. They're unique and are 100% our style, so maybe you'll like them too. And you can see for yourself at SignatureHardware.com slash GoodLife. You'll be amazed at the variety and the quality. So visit SignatureHardware.com slash GoodLife to find your style today. That's SignatureHardware.com slash GoodLife. Or just click the link in the show notes now. Real life isn't always perfect, but with Signature Hardware, it is beautiful. Did you go into advertising right out out of college? What what was your next move? So I graduated from college and it was the dot-com boom. It was the Uh, late 90s. And so I moved to San Francisco with my boyfriend who has been my sort of on-again, off-again college boyfriend. And I got a job and that was like when you could go to San Francisco and literally like you could walk down the street and people would be like, do you want a job? Like, do you (laughs) want a job? Can you please come work at my company? We can't find like, and, but you would be looking for a place to live. Like it was the, it was, um, on Craigslist, there would be apartment list apartments and you would go and there would be like an open house where the, all of the 40 people that wanted to live there would meet the person who was like the master tenant. And then they would like interview everybody and like decide who they wanted. And it was like, it was, it was like a 3% vacancy rate. It was crazy. It's kind of like it is now, except it was, you know, a lot less expensive. (laughs) Yeah. So we moved there and I'd never been to California before. And I went there, walked out onto the street in San Francisco. And I was like, this is where I'm supposed to live. Like Mm. it felt like my body was like, Oh, like, all the things that didn't make sense, like that have always felt uncomfortable to you about where you've lived before, like all yeah. of those things. It was it was so weird. And I'd never had that um, kind of relationship with a place before. And yeah, so I did, we did the dot-com thing and I got a job that was to this day, like the best job I've ever had. I worked at a magazine called The Industry Standard, um, which was a weekly publication. That. Yeah, it was like an internet. It was like one right. of the first, it, was like the, it started, it started it at the same time thing. as Fast Company right. and it didn't survive and Fast Company did and it didn't survive because they didn't have a viable business model like they gave away their magazine for free with the intention that like eventually they would get people to subscribe to it and they just had so much vc money that it didn't matter and they had four different buildings in downtown san francisco (laughs) and it was like 500 people worked there and i worked in their conference they threw these executive conferences that were like for, you know, uh, this one is for CMOs and this one is for CEOs and this one, and they were always at a Ritz Carlton and they were like all over the world. Mm -hmm. And I became the person who was in charge of the look and feel of like each conference and the materials. And so it would be like, well, this one's an Aspen. So I'm thinking like wood and leather. And there was like no budget for anything. And so I would be like, I'd like to make the the conference binder that everyone gets out of like hammered metal, you know? And they'd be like, (laughs) okay, like it was ridiculous. And then I got to go to each of these conferences and stay at the Ritz. And, you know, when I was like 23 and I was like, working is awesome. Like, this is so awesome. And then I got cancer. Um, And I got uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma and I was diagnosed and we, I couldn't afford to stay in San Francisco, like without a job. And I couldn't, it was not the kind of treatment that they were like, yeah, you can work through this. Like, it was kind of like, no, you kind of have to just do this for like eight months. Like you, you probably won't be able to like go to work every day. So I had amazing health insurance. That's one thing that I'm so grateful for. I had just like the absolute best Cadillac health insurance plan. I mean, because I was in the hospital for about three and a half weeks before I was diagnosed because it was really sort of complicated how it all came about. And by the time it was over, my medical bills had been like a million dollars. And I paid like $4,000. I mean, it was like, it it was amazing. And I ended up getting 
so I ended up going back to Boston actually for that year to get treatment at the Dana-Farber because it was the best Hodgkin's right, hospital. Yeah. And it was in network for me. And so my company, the industry standard, like to their credit, they were amazing. They moved my boyfriend and he worked there too. And they moved us. They gave me a, a credit card, like an unlimited credit card for like the last month that I was in San Francisco and was like, just every meal, like whatever, like just, just here, wow. like stuff that's unheard of. And you wouldn't even, no one would do it now, you know? And I think it was companies that like learned their, everybody kind of learned their lesson from this late nineties boom and bust. Right. But it was like, here, we'll just fund whatever you need. Like they moved us back. They shipped our cars back. They bought us like first class tickets to go back to Boston. Like they were just incredibly good to me. And, um, and then they went under like six months mm. later, um, probably because they were making like those kinds of financial decisions, but, um, it didn't affect my insurance. And, you know, and so we just did this eight months in Boston. And then as soon as that was over, we were like, I gotta get out of here. Like can't live here. And, um, there were no jobs to go back to in San Francisco. So we ended up going to Minnesota, which is where we'd both gone to college because it was like, well, it's, it's super cheap there. Right, you know, we it. have a lot of friends there. Like we know it, you know, we feel like there's a community there for us and we can just go back and it'll right. be easy to live there. What was, before you made that move af after the eight months of treatment, mm -hmm. what was, what was the prognosis at that time? I mean, how are The prognosis was good. I mean, okay. you know, Hodgkin's is one of, the, if you're going to get cancer, it's one of the better cancers to get, you know, um, which is like, you kind of hate hearing that when you have it. Cause you're like, yeah, but still like yeah. this sucks and I might die, but it really is like, you know, as on the cancer spectrum, like fairly treatable. And so my body responded really well to the chemo too and radiation. And so the prognosis was good, you know, and it was just like, okay, well, you know, here's the protocols. You go get a CAT scan every three months for five years and then they turn into six months. And then after 10 years, you don't get them and you just do this other thing. And, right. and so that was kind of, they sort of sent me on my way after that, which is odd, you know, to yeah. go from going to a place every day to have them be like, okay, like, see ya, like, you know, good luck. How did you make this sort of emotional, mental, psychological adjustment uh, from that to just, okay. That's a really, uh, I basically just was like, I'm going to pretend this didn't happen. Huh. I mean, there were so many lessons that I didn't want, that I felt at the time that I, 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 I felt like, I would be better off if I'd never learned that. Like, I remember feeling very clearly about like, you know, I feel like I'd be better off if I had never learned some of these things that I learned while I was sick about like the nature of how a lot of humans respond to something scary and how just, there were just certain things that I was like, I just really wish I hadn't had that experience. So, and so are, you, are you comfortable sharing like one and what one? Yeah. Be? Well, so, I mean, the, the, honestly, the biggest one, the biggest one was that I had, I had put so much stock in my friendships. I mean, my friendships were like really everything to me because they sort of replaced family in certain ways. And, and I felt like they, I had really deep friendships. And when I got sick, a lot of my friends just bailed um, because they were so scared and didn't know what to do and had no idea how to like be with me as a sick person and had never been through anything like that before with a, with a peer at all. And so just had no idea like how to even be, and it wasn't everyone, but it was like a, a couple of like very close people to me, like mm. someone who had been like my closest friend since like the end of elementary school. And I had like lived with his family for certain periods in high school. And it was just, he just couldn't do it. And at the time, I interpreted all of that as me just not being lovable enough or me not something about me just like not being good enough that I'd been, if, if I'd been 
better in some way that people wouldn't have done it. And it done that. And then of course, realizing later, like, no, that's, it has nothing to do with you. It's, it's just, this is how people respond to trauma sometimes. And when they don't have the tools to respond in a different way. Yeah. I mean, especially cause this was, you're in your early twenties. Yeah. I, was 20, I just turned so, 24. So it was like, right. so no most one people has at that. that point in their lives. No, have no one has equipped. any yeah. like coping skills. Like nobody, you know, right. and people don't even know how to be adults, you know, yet at that point in their life, you're just trying to figure out like, how do I feed myself? Mm. It was just really tough. And that was just, the, that was the hardest part. And it was really interesting because those, and I felt like no one talks about this. Like I felt like, you know, you read sort of cancer books and there wasn't like, there wasn't, the other thing was that there was, now there are all kinds of really great organizations like Stupid Cancer, which I do a lot of work with, is an, is an organization that is for people under 40 with cancer and cancer survivors and they do conferences and like they have this great community. And the only thing this was just, it just was 2000. And so there was like some like message boards and like listservs and stuff for people, but there wasn't like, there weren't like young people communities mm. or there was really no one that I could talk to about this stuff and be like, is this happening to you too? You know, right. there was just kind of like nothing. And so all the things that you read about, like, you know, losing your hair and people and like women being like, Oh, I feel so unattractive. Or like, I, you know, like my identity is gone. Like I, all this stuff. Like, yeah, those things were true, but they, but I felt like, well, my hair will grow back. And in a way it felt almost like a get out of jail free card. Like I didn't have to be concerned about how I looked. Cause I kind of knew that I looked like shit. And I was like, mm. I have cancer. Like, I'm not, I don't care about how I look. Like, I don't really, you know, like I, I can kind of not wear makeup and like not, cause I just feel like this is not a time. Like I don't have, like whatever I do, I'm going to still kind of look like shit. So I, yeah. I can just not think about that right now. And so it actually was kind of freeing in that way. Like, meh, like I just, I'm just going to put that aside. But the, the relationship stuff was so hard and I felt like no one talks about this or I had never heard about it as being like a huge component of what happens when you get sick or, you know, somebody you lose a spouse or some and, and go through some kind of loss or trauma that other people find scary. And so coming out of that, I just felt like, I just want to like put the, this behind me. Like I want mm. this to, I don't want this to like color the rest of my relationship. I don't want this to make, to, to um, inform negatively my relationships going forward. Like I don't want to be afraid to trust people. I don't want to be afraid to, you know, be my whole self with people. And so like, I'm going to just like put this away kind of in a box. And I was also super paranoid about, I didn't ever want to sort of identify as like a cancer survivor publicly because I felt like I was really paranoid about that becoming my identity. Like, and, and I just really was like, no, I just don't, I just feel like this is a thing that happened and I don't want to, and I'll talk about it if people want to talk about it. Like, I don't want to, I'm not going to like ever pretend it didn't happen, but yeah. I also don't want to lead with it ever. And for whatever reason, I was just really paranoid about that. And so the irony was like, you know, then, however many years later, 15 years later, when I, when the empathy cards thing came out, it was 300 major news organizations all over the world being like cancer survivor, hmm. Emily McDowell. And I was just like, Oh God, like it was really, it's the uh, very thing that, yeah, you know, it was so, so interesting. Yeah. And I was just like, Oh, okay. Like, I guess here it is, you know, like, I guess, I guess we're doing this now, but then it was fine. I mean, then it was like, yeah, it felt fine. But, right. You had yeah. a lot of time to process at that yeah. point. And actually, I'll, I want to come back to that, but let's sort of like fill in the rest of the story before we get there. So from there, then you, you know, quote, turn the page and say, okay, let mm-hmm. me just lean into something new. Lean into something new. And so I went to Minnesota, did various things for a couple years, 
in fact, started, <laughs> this is like a story that not a lot of people know. I um, really had no idea what I wanted to do. And I, my sister had just graduated from college and I went to, to Baltimore and we went to a bead store. Uh, anyway, the upshot being that I made a necklace out of beads at this bead store with my sister. And back in Minnesota, I'm wearing the necklace and I'm shopping for a wedding gift at a store. And the woman who works there says, hey, I love your necklace. Where'd you get it? And I said, oh, thank you. I made it. And she said, are you a jewelry designer? And I said, yes. And I was unemployed. Like I was temping at my old school, like calling an alumni right. and asking for money. And so she was like, well, you know, we have five stores and I bet our buyer would really like to take a look at your stuff. It looks like it would really fit in our store. So here's the buyer's card. If you, you know, whatever, want to get in touch with her, like here's her information. Mm-hmm. So I was like, hmm, like, you know, making this necklace was really fun and pretty <sighs> easy. And I bet I could make like a ton of necklaces. Like I can totally do this. And there was no Etsy. This was this was like pre any of that stuff. Yeah. And so I I went to the I went to a bead store in Minneapolis and I just bought a bunch of stuff and I made a bunch of stuff. And I called the buyer and I made an appointment. And I was going to try to like bluff my way through it. Like I was like, all right, I am gonna like just per, just study up on like all of this terminology and learn how much to mark everything up and all that stuff. So I like went and did a whole bunch of research and was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to just like pretend that this is what I do. And so I went in there and that plan fell apart in like 10 minutes because she started asking me questions that I like, didn't even know what the question was like, let alone the answer, you know? And so I sort of came clean and was like, ah, I've actually never done this before, but you know, I made all this stuff and they were so kind and they were like, we don't care. Like your stuff is awesome and we want to sell it in here. So we don't really care if you've ever done it before. So, I then started selling jewelry in these five stores and then they introduced me to one of their sales reps. And so I, then I had a a rep in that little area just in the upper Midwest. And so the first year that I was doing jewelry, I started just doing that full time and I made like $40,000 and I was like, Oh my gosh, like all I do is sit on the couch and watch HBO and my underwear and like bead things. Right. And you know? making legit money. And I'm making like that. money. And, and right. Because I was like 25 and I was right. like $40,000 in Minnesota was like, Oh, yeah. you know, this is, but it started to get bigger like I, it started to, the demand started to eclipse what I could just do. And so I was like just sitting and beating and beating and beating all the time. And so I knew nothing about business. And I was like, like, I guess what I need to do is start like hiring people or like outsourcing this or like figuring out how to do this. And that all, that whole thing sounded so daunting and so scary that I was just like, Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I just know that this isn't challenging my brain enough to like, I'm kind of bored. Like I'm, you know, like I'm just making, I'm just doing a repetitive task all day. This isn't quite what I want to do. And I looked into, so to to be in advertising, you need to go to portfolio school. Like you can't just get a job as a junior at an ad agency with a degree. You have to like go to a special school and like get a, a portfolio together and then, and then submit it to an agency. And it's super competitive to get your first job. And I'd actually looked into that school because there were a couple in Minnesota, but it was like 30 grand for two years. And I was like, I don't, you know, I'm not going to do take on any more debt. And then the, one of the big schools in Minnesota did a scholarship contest and it was not a normal thing for them. They just did it like this one year. And it was like you, the winner gets a, a full ride and it was an assignment. If you wanted to be a writer, the assignment was to write a radio spot which is super hard. It's the hardest thing. Writing radio is really hard. And if you wanted to be an art director, the assignment was make some marker comps of print ads for Minnesota winter tourism. And I was like, that sounds easy. Like that sounds way easier. Cause I was like, I don't know whether to be an art director or a writer. Cause I'd sort of had both in my background and uh-huh. I liked both. And I was like, I'm going to be an art director. Cause that assignment is way easier. And I feel like I would do way better at that. 
And so I'd said, and I remember saying to my boyfriend, like, well, if I get this money, which is a super long shot, I'm going to go to ad school and go into advertising. If I do not get it, I'm going to figure out how to build this, turn this into a company. Hmm. And I never thought that I would get the money. And then I did. And so you had to make a choice. I had to make a choice. And (laughs) I was like, all right, like, I guess this is what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, and, and I get to go to the school for free and I get this opportunity. So I'm going to do this. And so I finished in a year and a half because I was a little bit older. I was like 26 at the time. And most of the other people were coming straight out of undergrad. So I'd had a little more experience with computer programs and stuff at that point. When you made the decision, Mm -hmm. because at the time you're making like decent money doing jewelry. Was there a moment where you hesitated to shut that down? Not really. The big difference between then and then starting a company that I started in my 30s was I didn't trust my own judgment then. Mm. And I didn't trust that I knew what I was doing. And I didn't trust that like, they were just, it was too scary. At the time I was too young. I knew too little about business. And I still was clinging to that sort of vestiges. Like advertising felt really attractive to me because it was like, here's a ladder you can climb. Like here, this is like a track for a career that someone else designed that is like a predestined thing. Yeah, it's like the whole thing from your childhood. The whole thing from my childhood. Like this is is. like security. And I felt like this jewelry thing is cool, but I didn't feel secure. I didn't, you know, and I, and I could get much better health insurance if I was working in a company, which was another sort of factor for me. And so I was like, it was kind of a no brainer. Like I got the money and I was like, all right, like peace out jewelry. Like that was cool, but this is going to be like my real career. Like I'm going to start this adult job now. And so when I was 27, I started my first, I got my first agency job and, and I went and that took me back to San Francisco. That was how I ended up getting back to San Francisco was getting recruited and hired by a, a um, agency there. Yeah. So you, and that was an art direction mm-hmm. and you ended up staying there for, for close to a decade, right? Uh, in the, in the industry. Yeah. And then I moved to LA in 2006 and I've been in LA since. Right. And so I worked at various agencies in Los Angeles, but yeah, I, I was about four years in and really feeling like I really wish that I'd been a writer. Mm. <laughs> like that was, but you can either be one or the back other. back to that radio spot. Yeah, exactly. Like that. Just, right. And it was literally, yeah. that was what, that was what made that call for me. Right. Like it was yeah. this one thing that ended up setting a whole career in motion. And so you usually don't get to switch. And I had a very cool boss who I was working on ESPN at the time, which was almost all like low budget comedy TV. So for an art director, there's not that much to do mm. if you don't write also. And so I was writing sort of as many scripts as my co- copywriter partner, like he and I were writing them all together. And it was clear that I was like, just really enjoying writing and like, good at it. And my boss said to me, you know, we need another writer in the department. And we were thinking about hiring one, but I wanted to ask you first, if you'd rather switch, and then we'll hire an art director instead to fill your old job. And so I ended up doing that. And then ended up being a writer for the rest of the time and sort of coming up to creative director through being a writer. I liked that so much better. It was just so much less tedious. Like a lot of art, a lot of being an art director in advertising is working with a comp for 12 hours to make it like exactly right. And it was a lot of like banner ads at the time because it was like Mm -hmm. early, you know, 2005, like make this banner into like 12 steps so that a client understands that a guy walks across the screen and then like puts a thing down. And it was just, it felt, it was a lot of like late nights for like not a lot of return, you know, Mm. like it was just a lot of sort of tedium and writing felt better to me and easier and like more time efficient, you know? Right. So by the time you work your way up doing that, like what were you, what did you spend most of your days doing? Coming up with ideas for campaigns and working, you know, everything from, 
writing TV to doing 360, which uh, interactive is what they call it. I'm trying to think of like a, be- like a better term for it now. Cause it's like, I've been out of the industry for so yeah. long, but it now I think is just ads. Like everything is just at, like, uh, an app can be an ad, some kind of ga- online game, interactive thing can be an ad. And that stuff was like, just kind of like, it was a thing, but agencies still had like an interactive department versus a traditional department. Yeah. And now they don't anymore. Like now it's all integrated and it's all like 360 and just an ad is an ad. And it, you get very few assignments, I think, now that are like write a TV spot because usually they start with the idea and then develop the media from there. Right. And the old model was to buy the media first and then be like, have right. an idea that fits yeah. with this media. Yeah. And I think that they're doing it differently now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what's going on with you personally in your mind as you're like building this career in advertising in your life? I was really not happy and trying very hard to convince myself that I was liking it and that I was happy because I worked so much. And it's not like this everywhere, but I had a sort of a series of jobs where it was, you know, working Christmas and working Easter and canceling vacations and, and not having weekends and all of the stuff like putting in, I was putting in so much and I was really giving it kind of everything I had and really trying very, very, very hard. And I wasn't bad at it. Like I was fine at it, but I was never like superstar material in that career. But I was good enough at it that I kept getting promotions, Mm -hmm. you know, but it always felt like a huge struggle. Like it always felt very hard. And I kept thinking like, I don't want this giant element of my life to just feel like a struggle all the time. Like, I feel like there's a way to have a career that doesn't feel like this. And I feel like there has to be, you know, Mm -hmm. but I had no idea what that was or what that would look like. And I had put so much time in that it was really hard to look at it and be like, maybe this isn't the career for me. Mm. Because I also like, when you get to a certain point, you're making money and you're like, well, what am I going to do? Like now I'm in my thirties and I don't want to start at the bottom again in another industry. I don't even know what that industry would be. This is what I know how to do. And what's been so interesting to me after having left, been out of the business now for like four years is that, I had no idea that the knowledge that I had from being in that business was not knowledge that everyone had because I was surrounded. We all were surrounded by everyone who knew the same things we did. And so I didn't really understand how valuable that knowledge would be translated into another industry. Mm. And the way that I understand marketing and branding and how to build a brand and how to think about how people think and all, all of these strategy and all these things that I learned working in that industry, I came out of it and it was a while before I was like, oh, everyone in advertising had those things. So it didn't feel special, but actually this knowledge is super valuable and, and it, and it super translates outside of this industry. And I think, you know, there are a lot of people in that industry that are not happy. There are, there are people who are, and I think it's the kind of thing where you either have to like love, love, love it. Mm. And if you love, love, love it, it's like the perfect job for you. Like, it's just amazing. And you have like just an amazing time. But if you don't love it that much because it takes so much out of you, it's really hard to do it. Yeah. And a lot of people I know got to a point in their careers where they felt like, I wish I could leave, but I don't know what else I could do. The only thing I'm qualified for is this. Yeah. And it's like not even being able to see, like, actually, you have so much knowledge that translates 
to so many other things. Yeah. Good Life Project is supported by BetterHelp. So many of us are going through a lot right now and could really use someone to talk to. And friends and family, they can be great. But talking with someone who is truly qualified to help you feel better can be a real game changer. And BetterHelp can do just that. They're the world's largest online counseling service. You can get started no matter where you are in the world quickly. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Then you schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort, privacy, and safety of your own space. And they make it easy and free to change counselors if you feel you'd like to try someone else. BetterHelp also gives you access to an incredible range of expertise, which might not be available where you are. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid may be available. So visit betterhelp.com goodlife. That's better, H-E-L-P.com goodlife. And join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. And as a special offer for Good Life Project listeners, you'll get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com goodlife. So what was the moment for you where, where the things flipped and you were like, huh? It was starting to do cards and realizing that the place that I came from, which was, I was very, I got really used to thinking about solving problems and like, you know, because a successful ad convinces you that the product that you're buying will solve your problems because that's what drives all of our little human minds all the time is like getting our problem solved. And if you have a product that actually solves a problem, it's way easier to sell it <laughs> than if you have to make up a right. problem and then convince people yeah. they have it and then, and, and sell it back in. And so I started to think about that and, and just having that awareness, like having that kind of awareness and looking at an industry like greeting cards that had been the same for so many years and that there ended up being a lot of opportunity to sort of shake things up and disrupt it and, and do something different. But it was all based in a, like psychological awareness of how people think and like what people respond to. And I certainly would not have had that if I didn't have so many years of training, working in advertising right, and thinking yeah. about that. And so it was like, oh, I can actually apply this to create something that solves a problem instead of an ad that solves a problem. So you start to create cards. When you, when you create like that first one, in your mind, is this a test? So is this like a test on a potential path that takes yes. you out of what you're doing? Okay, so it was very deliberate from the beginning. It was deliberate from the yeah. beginning. I, um, and I was freelancing still when I had quit my job feeling like I really don't want to go back to a full-time job. I really want to use this to transition out. I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to freelance for a while and see if I can figure it out and, you know, not work all the time for the first time in however many years and just see if I can give myself some space to like right. figure it out. And so that's what I was doing. You know, I had this Etsy shop that I started just kind of to mess around and sell prints of my illustrations that people had started to ask for. So you're still doing art in the background during all, like you're creating your own stuff. I didn't have time to do it when I was right. working in advertising. And it wasn't until I started freelancing that I started right. drawing again. It, and yeah. it was like, and it was in, a, in an effort to decide and figure out what I actually wanted. Huh. And, it, and because I read some article somewhere about like, if you have no idea what you want to do with your life, like try going back to what you like to do as a kid. And so I started to think about like, well, what did I do? when I was by myself, like what, what did I enjoy doing? And the answers were writing stories and drawing and being creative. Mm. And we always had art supplies in the house and we always had, you know, that environment where it was creativity was super encouraged. And so 
I started drawing, like I started drawing little comics and I started doing hand lettering, which wasn't really a thing yet. There were some people, Mary Kate McDevitt, and like there were some right. people who were doing it, but it wasn't like not a trend like yeah. and not like now. And I'd always loved to do that. Like that was what I did in meetings when I was bored and what I did in school when I was bored in the margins. Mm. And so I was started to really do those things. And then Pinterest, I was, I was sort of another test where Pinterest then was introduced, like Pinterest started. And in the very beginning, when there weren't a lot of people on Pinterest, you could pin something and then that thing would be up on the homepage long enough for people to like repin it and repin it. And so Pinterest was just getting started right around the time that I started doing these illustrations. And so I started posting them on Pinterest to see what would happen. Mm. And people started repinning them like all over the place. And it ended up like Tyra Banks like tweeted a picture of one of them that she Mm. found on Pinterest. And, you know, and it was like, oh, like... Of course, and I didn't sign anything. I like didn't know. You know, I was <laughs> right. just so dumb. So there's like all this work floating around out there. Right. Now. So nobody knows it's you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And right. right. So I, so but because I wasn't even thinking about it that way. Right. I was just thinking like I'm doing a th- I'm doing a test kind of like. Yeah. And it was like oh my god, people really like this, and this was really fun for me to make. And okay, so this is cool. So let me. I'm just going to open a little Etsy store, and I'm going to go buy like a $500 printer and start printing these prints for people. And so that's what I was doing. And, and I was doing that at night, doing it on the side, you know, doing it in between jobs because I would be working for two weeks and then take a week off and then get another job and started to do that. And then started thinking, you know, I miss writing like because I was mostly doing little comics and I was mostly doing and, and like started doing some lettering, but doing it with like public domain quotes and things right. like that, like just to practice the lettering. And then I was like, you know, I really would like to to do my own stuff, but I felt like I needed to have like a purpose behind it. It felt like I want to be able to sort of think about this in an emotional way. Yeah. And that was where cards came in was because mm-hmm. I was like, you know, this is a thing that I always have trouble finding things that reflect my reality and like my personality and my relationships. And I feel like there's an opportunity to do something cool here. And when I started, I mean, I ha- and, and I hesitated a bit because I was like, how do you make money selling something that costs $4? Right. Like that was, I mean, it was really. Your, like your mind is going right back. To exactly. Like, like I was like, you know, and I'm, and I'm picturing yeah. and I'm thinking about it in, the, in this very small way. Like I'm thinking about it like I print a print and I can sell it for 25, 30 bucks. And why would I ever want to sell something for $4? You know, like I have to sell so many more of that thing. Yeah. And I don't know. And, and so really the first card was totally a test. And I had a hundred, which was like the minimum printed at a local printer. And I was like, well, maybe I'll never sell a hundred cards, but maybe I will. And I really felt, and I remember saying this to friends at the time, like if this gets in front of the right people, like I know people will buy this if they see it because like this is speaks to so many relationships Mm. that are not being spoken to. Was that the now famous Valentine's Day card? Yeah, it's a Valentine's Day card for the person you're kind of dating, but not really. Uh, Which, at the time, there was nothing for that. And I was like, I just feel, I felt super strongly that, like, this will sell if it gets in front of the right people. And what I thought would happen was, I'd put it in my Etsy shop, and, like, 10 people would see it, and they would just buy the crap out of it. Like, 10 people would be like, oh, my God, this is the most perfect thing I've ever seen. And they would buy it and be super happy. I didn't anticipate what ended up happening, which was it went viral and and ended up launching my company. But I did feel like very sure that it would connect with people. It was just the piece of, I wasn't sure at the time how to get it in front of them because I didn't have a social media following. I didn't have anything. I mean, I was just 
you know, me drawing pictures in my bedroom. Yeah. But like, I, I mean, clearly though, that must've signaled to you. It's like, wow, this is writing. I mean, it validated your hunch about the state of the green card For industry, sure. you know, and at the same time must've also validated to you, like there's, for whatever reason, you have a lens on the world and the ability to express what people are feeling, but aren't saying in a way that is just landing. And yeah. it's time to do more of this. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, and this was so fun. Like yeah. this didn't feel like a struggle. You know, this didn't feel hard. Yeah. This felt like this was fun and I could do this all day, every day. And so I was like, wait a minute, like I can do this. And I feel like I, at this point in my career, have a very good sense of like what is going to be good and what's not good. And I have no problem killing my own ideas because I've done that now for a million years. Mm. And the idea of being able to make those kinds of decisions on my own with no clients and, you know, and, and suffer the consequences. Like if I put something out and it fails, it's on me. But I would, I was like, I would so much rather be here and be doing that than be relying on someone else to make those decisions at this point, you know? That's so interesting because it's, it, I mean, it signifies not just the shift for you to like, not just a career shift, but it's really like, a moment where you're looking back on all those assumptions from your childhood and like the grasping for security and letting somebody else be in control and like right. create the container to saying, you know what, actually that's not necessarily the future I want. Totally. Yeah. So from there, I mean, this takes off, you start to build this really amazing company and you're creating a, a ton of stuff. You're hiring people, you've got inventory, you've got employees, yes. you've got a warehouse at some point and um, incredibly successful and doing a lot of stuff that you love. And we had a really interesting conversation a couple of days ago where it sounds like you, also, you you came to a time where you're like, okay, I'm successful from the outside looking in, from the inside looking out. But like when you kind of had a moment where you zoom the lens out and you're like, huh, let me just take stock of what's yeah. going on now. Is this, am I still happy? Am I, am I doing the job within the company I've now built that allows me to completely flourish? Talk me through this a little bit and the decisions you made. Yeah. So by the end of 2015, I had 15 employees and we had a warehouse in Las Vegas where all of our stuff was being shipped out of. And I had a whole staff there and I had house that I'd bought in Los Angeles that was serving as our office. And so we had like seven people in there working and it was becoming clear that I needed to hire more people, like a lot more people. And that my role was if the company was going to grow, I was going to have to hire a creative department and become like a creative director, or I was going to have to hire a COO or like some kind of, some kind of business partner, like, because really I was spending most of my time running the business and putting out fires and handling business problems. And even with my wonderful staff in place who, who are awesome, it wasn't enough. Like it was just, there was too much work um, and too many things to think about for the number of people who were working on it. And one of the things that I learned about myself in this process was that I didn't love managing a lot of people. Like, even if I really liked them, which I did, I liked all of them and I still do. And even if the people were great, I did not like managing a big team. I didn't really like having to be the boss. I mean, I liked being, I liked making the decisions, but I didn't like, I didn't like being the one who had to like, be like, oh yeah, we have to have a staff meeting. Let me like make that happen and force it. Like just, I just got to a point where I didn't like 
what my day-to-day was because my day-to-day was very much about running the business. And then at night when everyone left was when I would try to jam in all the creative because I was still writing and illustrating everything because that was what I loved to do the most. And I felt like the creative was suffering. I felt like, you know, I don't have enough time to really do this. And there are all kinds of new products I want to develop and all kinds of stuff that I want to do. And all of that takes so much effort trying to new product development takes a lot of time and a lot of resources. And it was clear that we were going to grow out of our warehouse really fast. And I was just like, I don't know how to even project what we're going to do. I don't know how to, like, I don't know how to even make projections. And my, even my accountant was like, I don't know how to tell you how to make projections because nothing that this company has done so far has like made any sense. Mm. Like nothing has followed any kind of logical trajectory. So I don't really know even how I can like what to tell you at this point. It's just your gut. And the creative was really suffering. And I felt like this is not, we're not going to have a company. Like if I can't make the work and make it good, like there is no company, you know, this is what's driving the whole thing. And the irony is that now I don't have the time to do it. And then I was like, well, I could hire this person, a COO. And I was like, oh, like it just sounded like so much work. It just sounded terrible. And then I started to look at, at our numbers and our whole, the wholesale side of our business was about 60% of our revenue but it required 10 times as much infrastructure as the website, as people who just buy things from our website. And we made way more profit on buying things from our website because it was just a much more streamlined thing. And we sold everything at a retail price and the wholesale was just, I mean, it was just like the amount of work that went into supporting having 1800 stores was just like astronomical. And so I started to think like, I mean, I was really looking at like, should we just stop making every other product besides cards? Like, because it's really hard to manufacture things. Like, should we just decide we're not going to do wholesale anymore? What would happen if we did that? What would happen if we, you know, and so I was going through like a million different scenarios in my head and, and with our, and with my head of sales and my head of operations. And we were just talking about like, how, what do we do here? And then um, I actually had a really interesting opportunity which is a company in Seattle called Madison Park Group. And they partner with, I think they have eight different brands that they partner with right now, where they ended up taking on, and they work differently with each partner depending on the partner needs. But what they did for me was they ended up taking on the logistics and manufacturing for the wholesale side of my business. And so we took all of our wholesale inventory, which was you know taking up, 75% of the warehouse because mm. it's it's just volume-wise is so yeah. much. Shifted it to Seattle, which is where their warehouse is. And a couple of my employees went over and started working for them doing their exact same jobs. And so now basically when the phone rings, it goes to, from a store, it goes to Seattle and all of the customer service is handled from Seattle and all the shipping goes out of Seattle. And I have a product development team there that I work with now and it's still me. There's there's no creative. Um, they're not doing any kind of creative control. It's just me being like, hey, I want to make this. Can you guys help me figure out how to make this? Mm-hmm. And they will. They have a lot more experience in working with different vendors than I do. A lot more experience in working overseas than I do. And so it's much easier for them to find a vendor in China right. or India or wherever that can make a thing that I want to have made and have it be an ethical factory and have it be like in a way that I want to have it made. And then they sort of, they front the money for the purchase order and, and I get a back end percentage from all of the wholesale basically. Right. Yeah. So, and, and the net result is that 
you get more space to go back to doing the Way thing more that space. a you love to do, yeah. and that you know, like if it's not being done at the highest possible level, nothing else matters. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And it's scaling. It's it allows me to scale the company in a way that I couldn't have done before. Yeah. Like we have all kind, we have five or six new categories of products coming out in the next four months that yeah. I never could have done on my own. Which is amazing because people, when people talk about scaling stuff, you know, a lot of them means. The, the assumption very often in business is, you know, like part of what you're going to do is have to change roles, mm-hmm. you know, and you're going to have to step out of being the artist or the technician or totally. like the chief IP creator and be the CEO and be like the head of operations. And I've seen so many people do that and actually build successful companies and and end up building a company that they hate going to. Totally. And, <laughs> and it even happens within advertising too. Like when the only way to become a creative director is to be really good at being a writer or an art director mm. and being a creative director is a totally different job. Right. And so what ends up happening is a lot of people get promoted and like, it turns out that they were way better at being a creative than they are as a creative director. Or it turns out that they don't actually like it and they really miss doing the work right. and that they don't actually like, you know, selling stuff and, and flying around and talking to clients and like doing that and managing teams. They actually would just rather be like sitting in a room writing scripts, but it's, you don't know until you get there Yeah, and it's a totally different job. And I think, and that happens a lot, like where it's like you do so well doing a thing that then you get promoted or you build a company, yeah. you build something that then you are like, wait a minute, my role here is totally different than, than when I started. Right. But I think that like the really cool difference is that, you know, like if you're doing this for there, there's a prescribed path in another company or industry where right. like, this is the next step. Like right. there is no left or right. It's like, this is the next step. Whereas when you're creating it yourself, I love what, you know, what a, you had, the, like you recognized that you actually had the opportunity to sure, choose totally. to do it differently, you right. know, and to actually reclaim the part of it that you liked and then literally create the job that you wanted and sort of like yeah. pull it back. And, and at the same time, still grow your company, still scale your business, still, it just took sort of like looking at it differently. Yeah. And I had various options to do that too. Like it was yeah. like, we could have done X, we could have done Y, we could have done Z. You know, it was just figuring out what the best move was because it was really clear that what I was doing was just overwhelming me and not yeah. working. And it's so funny because I said to you earlier, like I ran into one of my best friends from college downstairs in the coffee shop when I was on my way up here. And the last time I saw him in person was when I was here a year ago. And he was like, you just seem so much happier. Like you just seem like last time I saw you, you were people so, feel it, for you sure. were so stressed out. And like, you were just, it just was clear. And I think it was clear to you too. He was like, we didn't really talk about it, but it was like clear to me that what you were doing wasn't like sustainable for you, you know? And it was clear to me then, but I didn't see the path out of it. Yeah. I just saw like, I got to get through this. And I don't know even what that looks like or what that means. And I had just signed a contract to write a book on top of everything else. And I was just like, what did I do? What have I done? Right. Like, what, who, what, you know? Yeah, it's amazing. Sometimes we just need to, like, figure out a different path or just let go of the, the assumption that, like, that there is a prescribed way to actually make this happen. Oh, for so, sure. Like, yeah. Um, kind of coming full circle to a certain extent. Also, like, you know, earlier in the conversation, we're talking about how the fact that when you're going through cancer treatment, like you had this big awakening about how people just don't understand how to relate. Um, Mm -hmm. But you didn't want that to define you. And you also made some really interesting deliberate choices because when you started the card company and we started to succeed, you could have immediately created a line of cards that were all, you know, like your empathy cards, but Mm -hmm. but like with your particular form of let's make this real, you know? But you chose not to do it until right. much later in the process. Yeah. I mean, that was super deliberate. And it was because 
I knew that the idea that I had to do a different kind of sympathy card, I knew that I could write them in a way that were going to address some problems and resonate with people. And I knew that if I did it right, that it could be a really big idea. And I also knew that it would be really different than anything that existed out there. But I, what I really didn't want was to be pigeonholed and to have my whole company turn into like a cancer card company. I really felt like my brand was bigger than that. And I felt like there were a lot more different kinds of problems and things that I could do. And it also was like, I don't want to be in that space all the time. Like it's kind of depressing to be in that space all the time, to be honest. Like I, I want to be able to sort of be there, but also be in a space where we're talking about like love and relationships and more fun stuff or things that are other like less critical problems that need solving, but that are still interesting, you know? And I was worried that if I started off and my brand became known at the same time as those cards were becoming known, that those two things would become inseparable. That was just such a big thing that it would sort of eclipse everything else. Mm -hmm. And I also felt like this is a big idea and I was watching the trajectory of my business and every month it was just more and more and more people buying the stuff, following me on social media, sort of just growing the platform. So I was like, you know, if I hold on to this for like a year, I will have the opportunity to really, I think, get this in front of a lot more people when we do launch it. And in fact, what happened, and the, and I really, the reason, one reason that it was so successful, the empathy cards were so successful immediately and just like caught fire was that Brene Brown had become a fan of my work before I launched empathy cards. She really liked what I was doing. She let, like, she had bought some stuff. I'd sent her some stuff like we and then we just sort of became friends over email. We have some friends in common. So when I, when I did empathy cards, I sent her some before I released them. Mm-hmm. It wasn't with the intention of her posting about them. It was just like, I think you will love these. This is what I'm doing now. I'm super excited about it. I'm, I'm just giving you like a preview of it because I think they're like super up your alley and I know that you'll really like it and, yeah. you, and you like my work. And she was like, oh my God, these are amazing. I want to write a whole blog post about them and like send it out to all, everyone that is hmm. on my subscriber list. And that's like millions of people, you know? And I was just like really blown away by that. And she did. I mean, she, the morning that we released them, she sent out this email to all of her subscribers that was about them. That was just like, look at these things. They just came out. Look at what they do. Here's the blog. Like read what, what she said about them. Like, this is pretty awesome. Immediately, people started posting them on social media. And then 24 hours later was when all of the, you know, Slate and Huffington right, Post and those guys started picking it up. And yeah. then 24 hours after that started to be like NBC Nightly News and Good Morning America and the TV people. Yeah, but what's so cool is like, I mean, because I guess because of the time that you spent in the ad industry, you understood that cycle. Mm-hmm. And even though you got this massive onslaught of, you know, these expanding ripples of larger and larger media that were great for the company, your plan worked perfectly, which was you were established enough already as something bigger than that. Right. That it didn't define the entire brand anymore. Right. Which it didn't is define like, the brand. Yeah. And, you know, there are a lot of people that associate us with that. And that's fine. Like, I don't mind that at all. Yeah. You know, it's not, I don't, I don't mind the association. And, I, and, I, and I'm actually very proud of the association. But we were, it's true, we had enough other products, because we had a lot of other, you know, we had 150 other products at that point. And so it was enough of a thing. And and Brene, you know, knew my work totally outside of that context. Like she, you know, had bought our other cards. And so she wasn't thinking of us as that company. And so she didn't position in her email, didn't say like, there's this company that is about, that's all about cards for grief and cancer. It was... So that plan did work. And and the part of the plan that was let me wait 
Because if I had just done it, if I'd come out of the gate with this, I wouldn't have known her. I wouldn't have known any of the other people who posted about it. I mean, it's amazing to see because when when you look at what you've created and sort of the breadth and, you know, like the thousands of stores that's distributed in and um, the expanding product lines and all this, I think the immediate assumption is, wow, like she's been in this for a couple of decades. And yeah, it's yeah. happened astonishingly. I mean, you, yes. you could look back and say, no, you've actually been building to this your whole life. But yes, <laughs> I have. I've been building the skills required to do it my right. whole life. But the actual infrastructure of the company has only, this has only existed for like three and a half years. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you ever sort of just like stop for a moment and look around and say, wow. <laughs> yeah, I do it all the time. And you know, it's my life, especially even like a year in was so, was 180 degrees from what it had been a year before. Mm. And one of the things that this has really taught me is, and maybe other people don't think this way, but I know that for me, when I thought about things that could happen quickly that would change your life, it was always in the context of bad things. Like someone dies that's close to you and your whole life changes or like the bottom falls out or your you know your house burns down or like whatever, like some tragic thing that ends up changing the trajectory of your life. And I never really thought about it in the context of like a good thing, you know, unless it's like winning the lottery or something. But like I never really could have imagined you could have a year of your life it's like putting a blindfold on you and spinning you around and just sending you off in a whole different direction. And I'd never really thought about that or certainly hadn't experienced it. And so to have that happen was just, it was insane. I mean, it's, it is still insane. And, and to think about how different my life is now than it was five years ago is kind of astonishing. Yeah. Which actually feels like a good place to come full circle. So the name mm-hmm. of this is good life project. So if I offer that phrase out to you to live a good life, what does it, what does it mean to you? What comes up? It means to, Spend your time in integrity, like spend your time doing something that you enjoy and also feeling good about what you're doing and, and what you're contributing to the world and feeling, just feeling like you're living without, without any kind of regrets, feeling like you're living without, you know, that if you died tomorrow, you wouldn't look back and say like, oh, I wish I'd done this or that or the other thing, you know, to just be, it means being present in who you are and, and living that way. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening. We love sharing real, unscripted conversations and ideas that matter. And if you enjoy that too, and if you enjoy what we're up to, I'd be so grateful if you would take just a few seconds and rate and review the podcast. It really helps us get the word out. You can actually do that now right from the podcast app on your phone if you have an iPhone. You just click on the reviews tab and take a few seconds and jam over there. And if you haven't yet subscribed while you're there, then make sure you hit the subscribe button while you're at it. And then you'll be sure to never miss out on any of our incredible guests or conversations or riffs. And for those of you, our awesome community who are on other platforms, any love that you might be able to offer sharing our message would just be so appreciated. Until next time, this is Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project. Good Life Project.